Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. It's March, y'all. And as you know, March is Women's History Month. And according to womenshistorymonth.gov, it's all about commemorating and encouraging the study, observance, and celebration of the vital role of women in American history. I recently had the pleasure of presenting for an amazing group of gals who were sixth through 12th grade, and uh, they were from a native boarding school in Oklahoma. And we sat and ate, and then we talked through the idea of what this significant month can mean to our community and to their own lives and their futures, and especially really talking about looking forward to what this means to us as Native American women. So I decided to sit down later after I had met with the girls and just record portions of the presentation I shared with them. And hopefully it'll be some thoughts for everyone to ponder, myself included. So I hope you'll share this with your female friends and family members, daughters, nieces, students, and so on, because we all have a chance to impact the world, whether you're native or not. So now is our time to shine and thrive. So thank you, my sisters, and please know I'm cheering you on. Here were my words to this generation of upcoming American Indian women at the boarding school. I'm Rachel Youngman, and I live in both Chickasha, Oklahoma, and Barrington, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. So I grew up in Anadarko, Oklahoma, which is home to more Native Americans than anywhere in the world. So Anadarko and Oklahoma in general are areas where Plains Natives, so Kiowa, Comanche, Apache, roamed the Plains. But then the removal happened, spurring the Trail of Tears, where, as you know, Oklahoma and specifically Anadarko, too, just became this melting pot of all these different tribes from around the country coming into one single place. So it's interesting to see where many years ago there were these warring tribes and then they were all placed in this one area. So think about that, y'all. You are sitting here, multi-tribal, surrounded by people who not that long ago, your ancestors wouldn't have been able to sit beside. And they're probably looking down on you now going, what are you doing? Do not sit by that person. <laughs> we, we don't get along with them. So it's kind of an interesting thought if you think about it. So do you ever wonder if the women had been in charge, would they have been able to hang out and be at peace with each other? Or would they have all of this warring that's, you know, for centuries was going on? Maybe so. I don't know. But it's an interesting thought. So we always hear a lot about our chiefs 
And sometimes we, on a rare occasion, we'll hear about the women from our native pasts. Who are those female American Indian women that you can name right off the bat? Okay, ready? So there's Pocahontas, there's Sacagawea, and hmm, who else? Right? I mean, we know about our chiefs. We can talk about them. Even non-natives can at least point out one chief from history, right? So but we all can't always sit down and think of some famous Native American women. So guess what? There were many more Native American women out there that did significant things in history, but a lot of us just aren't familiar with them. So I'm going to name a couple. Lida Conley, Wilma Mankiller, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman, Zitkala Sa, Elizabeth Wanamaker Paratrovich, Annie Dodge Wanika, Mary Golda Ross, Sorry if I've messed up any of those, the pronunciation of some of those names, but I encourage you to just go Google famous American Indian women this month and learn more. And maybe every year, go find a new one to research and get to know them and and let them be your inspiration. And while you're at it, go share with other people too. post on your social media. Hey, here's a gal I just read about spread the word about these women who did big things. They weren't just behind the men. They were also doing things that were big for their own communities as well as others. So think about what women's history month means to you and really kind of start going into yourself to think, what role do I play in this? Do I have a future as being one of those really important American Indian women that made impacts and that will be talked about in the future? When I think about a whole month dedicated to those women who came before us, I have to think, what does this mean to me? Are my ancestors significant? Am I doing them proud as well by being significant where I can in my lifetime? I want to tell you a story about a little girl named Ella Davis, born in 1903 to Rose Coley and Tom Davis. Ella's mom, Rose, was having a hard time, and she gave her up in 1906 to a white guardian named J.D. Anderson. And J.D. Anderson was not nice to Ella. He beat her, he treated her as a slave, and he wouldn't let her speak her own Choctaw language and all those things you hear about in the history books. Well, actually, they're not always in the history books. I guess they've been kind of passed down um, those stories orally, or we're just now starting to hear a whole lot more. But Ella wasn't the only one. Rosa had also another child before Ella who was named Mary Bell. And prior to giving up Ella, she gave Mary Bell to J.D. Anderson. But even then, about four of Rosa's own aunts and uncles had been given up to Mr. Anderson too by Rosa's own mother as well. So what does that make you feel when you hear that their own mothers would give them up like that to a man who abused them? But let's peel back the layers of the onion just a little bit. So Rosa came from a prominent Choctaw family. They had land, lots of animals. They were well-respected and times were good. And this is again, after their families had come over on the Trail of Tears um, during the removal and they were placed in Eastern Oklahoma. So they had really started to thrive and were doing very well. So Ella's mom, Rosa, married several men over the years. And the first one she loved very much. In fact, when she died, even though she had married other men, she had taken his last name to put on her tombstone. But this man that she married drank a lot and he began to beat her. So her family forced her to leave them. They're like, you've got to leave that guy. 
So she did. I don't think she had divorced at that time, but she had at least left him. So one day Rose and her parents and siblings were at a church meeting and, you know, they used to have those long church meetings that would go on sometimes for days. And it was as much a community thing as it was a praise and worship thing and preaching and all that. Um, and by the way, again, the last names of, of this family were Coley, C-O-L-E-Y. So while they're having this church meeting, a man runs up to the church meeting and he's screaming that someone has set fire to the Coley house. So Rose's dad and brother knew that her ex-husband was probably behind it because there had been a lot of problems. And so they went to his house and they killed him. So with that, Rose's dad and brother were thrown into prison and the prison environment at the time was so bad that they actually died not too long after in prison. What a miserable way to go. So Rose's mom, Sophie had like 11 kids. Um, and that's when she gave up about, I think about four, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but gave up about four of her kids to JD Anderson, as I mentioned earlier. So why do you think she did that? So you've got Sophie giving up some of her kids and then her daughter, Rosa, giving up two of her girls to this guy. So, you know how I said that they were prominent, this Coley family. Well, now because Sophie, uh, Rose's mom, because her husband had died in prison, she fell in hard times. She had had to give up those kids. In fact, the very last record I found of her, she had taken a job as a maid for a family and was living with them. And can you imagine how that felt? You know, like her ancestors came over during the removal and survived that. And then she was doing great, had married a good man, had had lots of kids. They were really well known in their community. They were very faithful people, just good, good, kind folks. And then all of a sudden it just truly fell apart. So here she is mourning her husband and her son passing away. And by the way, she had lost a few kids along the way to, um, I, you know, like she had birthed some kids who later passed away and I'm not sure how they died, but so here she is mourning again for her husband and her son. Then she has to give up her kids. I assume they had to sell the farm because if she was living with uh, the folks that she was working for, again, the point is, is that it all fell apart. You know, she had to keep those kids fed. So this is probably the thing that she thought she could do to make sure that her kids survived. And when you think of those, those heartstrings of a mother, you know, think about that happening today like having to give up your kids because you just can't take care of them. So it, it when I think about that, I, I have a hard time judging, you know, it's like, oh, maybe I should see this through a different lens. So um, Rosa at the time when Sophie was giving up her children, she was obviously a grown woman. You know, she had married uh, that guy uh, with the last name Drake. And so she and a couple of siblings, the, those few didn't go live with JD Anderson, of course. So she then again, marries several men. One of them, she has a baby with that first one again is Mary bell, but that husband went to prison for a crime. He was a school teacher, but he went to prison for a crime he had committed. So that's when she did that first giving up of one of her children. She gave up Mary bell to JD Anderson. I assume that she looked at what her mom had done and said, okay, so this is my only option. And then um, I think she marries one or two people after that, but eventually she marries Tom Davis and she has Ella, but then Tom goes to prison for murdering a man. And so Rosa gives Ella up to JD as well. So now she has two kids and 
her husbands have both ended up, well, the first one was murdered. Um, the second one was put into prison and she had to give those kids up to JD Anderson. Ella had said later in life that she really hated her mother for giving her up when she was only three years old. And it makes me wonder, okay, were her intentions just that I don't want these kids. Maybe that's how Ella felt. Uh, but maybe Ella didn't even know because she, it had been years since she had seen her mother. She was, it was later in life that she said, okay, I need to make amends with my mom and at least hang out with her. But even then she never really forgave her. So I would just wonder kind of, you know, were Rose's intentions different from Sophie's, her mother's, or were they both just kind of in that same boat? Lots of speculation there, but either way, you know, you see this pattern here, they give up their kids. And so you know, I kind of went from when I was researching the story to going, okay, I was angry at these moms. Why would you give up your kids? I would never give up my kids. But when you hear the whole story, you try to, you know, kind of understand and have some empathy. So moving on, Ella lived a very sad life with the guardian JD Anderson in Silver, Oklahoma. JD was able to take the land allotments of all these Choctaw kids in his care. And he became one of the wealthiest landowners in Sulphur, Oklahoma. So JD had horses, of course, you know, very common at the time. And Ella loved to ride a beautiful white horse that he owned. And in her old age, actually, I had heard that it was her horse. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I can't imagine that they'd give one of their servants a horse, but it could be. So in her old age, she would later say that she'd get on that horse and she'd ride as fast and hard as she could. And she'd get in a lot of trouble for doing that, but she did it anyway. She'd hear them yelling at her, get off that horse. You're going to hurt the horse. You're going to hurt yourself. But she felt free when she did it. She was stubborn and she was like, no, I'm going to do whatever I want in this one case. You know, you guys rule my life. I don't have my mother anymore. And so this is my time. Thankfully, Ella and her half-sister, Mary Bell, had each other. And as the teen girls had grown their hair out, as most American Indian girls did back then, uh, they had their hair in braids and the Andersons cut their hair off. They cut off those braids. And I wonder why they did that. Was it a part of the abuse? Was it, we don't want your hair getting in the way? I have to think assumptively that they probably, it was part of the abuse. The girls were very, very upset. They, you know, Ella talked about it many years later about how upset she actually was. And they kept their braids though, and they put them in a chest and they wanted to preserve them. So later JD Anderson and his family moved to New Mexico. And this was after Mary Bell had left. So Mary Bell was older and eventually she got married and moved away from the horrible place where she had been living and, and had grown up. So they decided to move to New Mexico, the Anderson family, and they took Ella with them and they put her in a boarding school. So usually when you hear native boarding school, you know, these terrible things come to mind, the reputation of damaging the kids, true stories, just terrible. But Ella actually said later in life that she really loved it there and was able to be around other American Indian girls and learn a lot. She got to learn and which was a big thing for her. She really liked learning. And if you think about it, I've thought, okay, so there's three options. Either Ella was trying to make her life look better than it was. And she had a really hard time at that boarding school. I don't believe that one. Um, the other option is that she really did enjoy it. And she liked learning and being around the other girls and being around people who looked like her with her dark brown skin. She was very dark. And in that case, you know, it, it sounds like she really enjoyed it. Or it could be that her life was so bad on the Anderson farm that 
maybe this was an escape for her. And, and even a bad boarding school where she was being abused was better than being with the Andersons. I don't know. There's so many little parts of these puzzles that we don't know. Let that be a lesson to everyone. Go talk to your family members, find out the true story while they're still here with us, because we honor them when we carry on their stories. Eventually, Ella was able to move out on her own. I say move out on her own. She got married. And that's why she was able to leave the Anderson household. And she was either able to get her land allotments back or they always were going to be hers. And J.D. Anderson just had temporary use of them. I'm not totally sure. But either way, some of that land was in the Arbuckle Mountains, where Arbuckle Wilderness is today. So Oklahomans, Mosokis know where Arbuckle Wilderness is. It's a place where you can drive through and feed the animals. Lots of fun. I remember in the 80s, there was a song. I can still sing it in my head. I'm not going to sing it right here. But it's a great place to go. So anyone who doesn't live in Oklahoma, want to go check that out. Arbuckle Wilderness, it's beautiful out there in the Arbuckle Mountains in Oklahoma. But most of the land that she had uh, was in Wayne, Oklahoma, and it's still in her family today. And it's a beautiful thing to see her descendants living on that land and running with the cattle ranch that they've set up over the years. And so there is a happy ending to this story. I mentioned that both Mary Bell and Ella married wonderful men and uh, they loved them very much. I mean, they were very devoted husbands. They took good care of them. And I think they kind of healed them in a way, those two girls who had been through so much, both girls rarely talked about their stories. There was just apparently too much trauma to relive the experience. And they also were both really positive and upbeat people. I think they didn't want to people to look at them as victims. Um, everybody deals with trauma in their own way. And that's perfectly acceptable. But for these two ladies in a time, especially when you don't talk about your feelings or emotions, especially as an Amer American Indian woman, um, this was their path. They, this is how they acted uh, on a daily basis. And I have to, I have to admire that. So Ella was a lovely person. Uh, she was full of joy. She cared about people. She never learned to drive as well. Uh, so when her husband died, she had to wait for friends to come and take her to the store. And she was always so grateful for those friends. She lived a very simple life. She lived in Choctaw Indian housing out in the country. It was just one house by itself out in Wayne on her land allotments. And uh, she just was happy out there. Her husband did die many years before she did. So I think she Never got over that, but nevertheless, she was a very positive person. By the way, I can't imagine never learning to drive. And I, it's not that that was terribly uncommon then, but I just can't imagine not being able to get around by myself, right? So have you heard of the term historical trauma? Now, when I was talking with the kids, I noticed that maybe one or two raised their hands of the whole room. Most of them had not heard of this term historical trauma. So historical trauma, it can mean a lot of things. Sometimes it's a buzzword and I don't like that. It's to me, this is what I feel like it means. And from the research that I've done. So let's say in this case, very specific to native Americans, let's say all those things were going on in which the government was coming in. They had had invaders from outside worlds, um, coming in to, you know, we call them colonizers to this country where natives have had roamed for years and they had their own stories going on in their own lives. And then all of a sudden, all these outsiders were coming in. Um, I think some natives welcomed them. Some very much did not and saw the threat that was coming, which turned out to be true. So in the 1830s, when they started removing 
Native Americans from their original homeland, like let's say the Choctaw coming over from Mississippi, they had to have them move from where they their people had been for centuries and where they had had homes and livestock and farms and all that. And they had to move them to a place where some of them had never even been before. Some of them had, like, I know that there were some Choctaw who would come over to Indian territory area, now Oklahoma, and they would hunt Buffalo, but it's not like they lived there. So here they come over to Indian territory and think about how traumatic that was. Think about what it would be like for you. If all of a sudden you were told your skin's not the right color, you need to adapt to an outside world and you haven't adapted. So we're going to move you. Yeah. And we're going to put you in this new place. You won't know anything. We're actually going to also put you next to tribes that you used to people used to war with. So there's that, um, (laughs) terrifying, so terrifying. And I'm sure the parents were trying to make it seem okay for their kids. You know, it's going to be all right. We're going to be a family. And then half the people die on the way over because it's so awful. And the conditions were so terrible. And they were walking on this trail of tears. Some of them went by boat, some of them other means, but let's say worst case scenario, they were walking on this trail of tears. A lot of them died in these terrible winter conditions. So let's say you survive that, but now you have to get used to this new place. It's terrifying. It's traumatizing. So let's say then, you know, maybe even those people that came over and survived the trail of tears, they're dealing with their own fears and the ramifications of what just happened to them and not knowing what the future held either. Do we truly set up here? Do we set up roots? Are they going to move us again? Who from these warring tribes are going to come in and try to kill us all, all the things. And then let's say on top of everything else, you had the boarding schools. And so the government's taking, literally stealing your children and putting them in these boarding schools, who knows where, could be in another state. It could be in Pennsylvania. It could be anywhere. You may never see them again. In a lot of cases, they didn't. They just didn't see their kids again. They didn't know if they died. Uh, Some of them did come back. Some of their kids did come back. Some of them ran away. Some of them came back when they had graduated. Um, But for the most part, another traumatizing experience. Now for the kids themselves that went through the boarding schools, And again, in most cases, the boarding schools were not a happy situation. They dealt with the pain of oftentimes being beaten, um, sometimes molested, just a really, really bad situation, um, missing their families, never knowing if they're going to see them again, watching their classmates die from the poor living conditions, not having enough food, just really, really sad conditions. And so those boarding school children Let's say the way that they knew how to cope with that situation, maybe later in life was alcoholism or they had been beaten themselves. Maybe they beat their own children. And I know a lot of Native Americans listening to this today are going to say, yes, I totally relate to that because that happened to my great grandparents or whoever. So let's say there's now abuse and alcoholism, some addiction going on. And then on top of that, they have children, they pass that on, Who then they pass that on, then they pass that on. That is historical trauma. So when you just look at a family who maybe has some issues, so let's say you see them fighting all the time, you see them drinking too much and that kind of thing. You may just look at it for face value, just like we did with Ella's mom, Rosa and her mom, Sophie, by giving up their children. But really, when you start to peel back those layers of the onion and you really look at that history of those people and those women and those men, there could be a very valid reason 
for what's gone on with them and why they're acting that way today. And that cycle to break is extremely hard. I talk to people all the time who, you know, are trying to purposely trying to break that cycle and it's not easy to do. And we commend anyone working on that in themselves and with their families. And so that historical trauma thing is, is kind of interesting that, you know, Mary Bell dealt with her historical trauma in various ways. Um, so when she would come over to people's houses, even her own relatives, she would steal things like just like little trinkets and such enough to be able to, you know, small enough to fit into her purse. So it's like, oh, I really like this, this little bowl. This is pretty. I'm just going to stick it in my purse. And she'd bring it home and she'd even display that stuff out where people could see it. I think, I think that was part of the story because when her relatives would come over, her friends or something, they'd see it. They'd just be like, oh, there's my bowl. You know, Mary Bell took my bowl, I guess. All right. I'll just put it in my purse and take it back to my house. <laughs> people just knew in the family that that's what she did. But we know that that was kind of a playing out of some of the historical trauma that she went through. I tend to believe that maybe what she went through was a little bit harder than what Ella went through, but either way. So, you know, I just, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also really sad. So Ella died in 2001 at the age of 98 years old. Can you imagine what she saw in her lifetime? So I'll be sure to share the very last photo of Ella with her great-granddaughter, Stacy and her great-grandson, William. Um, and William's named for Ella's husband, who was named William Creeley. So Ella was married to William Creeley. She named her son, William Creeley, and then her son, uh, his son's daughter, if that makes any sense, <laughs> named her son, William. So lots of Williams in that family. So I'll be sure to share that photo. So you guys can see that. Um, so there Stacy and her son, William and Ella are all sitting together visiting. And it was right before Stacy was about to leave uh, where Ella was living at the time, which was the um, nursing home. So Stacy in this photo is my sister. So Ella was our great grandmother. So this story of Ella Davis is very near and dear to my heart and of her half sister, Mary Bell, because they went through so much. And I really, really want to encourage you to, if you've got family members still living, go talk to them. And if you've got you know, an Ella type person living in a nursing home, go say hi to her. You know, she is your female ancestor and someday she won't be able to tell you her story anymore. Go ask her questions because right after this photo was taken, Stacy had to leave the nursing home to get back with her son, back to her house. And the last thing she said to Stacy was, I'll be all alone now. And that's, you know, that's a hard thing to swallow because we, we wanted to go spend time with her, but we didn't live in the same town. You know, we lived in Anadarko and I think she was in Wayne or Purcell at that time, but I wish we had been able to go there every day to see her. You know, of course, if we could go back in time, we say we would do all these things, but I really think I would, I think I'd go there once a week or whatever, just to hang out with her, maybe play cards. Cause she had quite a sharp mind up until the end. But again, please, please listen to our story. And don't let that be your story. Don't have regrets. Go see them. They won't be around forever. So these strong, brave women may have been a little broken by the things that had happened to them. And they never will have known, though, the strength and the inspiration they may have given to others. And I know they gave to me. So that strength that they gave to me was really felt throughout my life, even though I didn't always 
really sit and think about it by my junior year of college, I was paying for it myself and I was exhausted. I had an old car to get me to my many jobs to help pay for my college. And that car had broken down. It was a 1979 Volkswagen rabbit in white with blue interior. If you open the doors, you'd hear it. <laughs> People would look at me when I'd open my door because it was so loud. Anyway, that car was hauled off to the dump. So I started having to start my day at like four or 5 a.m. So I could walk to my first job because I lived way off campus. And I would walk to my first job, take a break, go to classes, go to my second job between classes, and then finish up the day going to my last job of the evening and then walking home to start my homework at 11 p.m. And I had very little food except for the rations I got from the Indian services. Thank you, Indian services. But even then, um, you know, once my car broke down, if I couldn't get a ride from someone to go out to that place, which I can't even remember where it was, it was, I was going to Southwestern Oklahoma State at the time. So some facility, you know, way out there that had to, you had to drive, you know, maybe it was 30 minutes away or something. So if I couldn't get a ride from somebody, I just did without, and I remember living on peanut butter and, but you know, that is the struggle of the college kid in a lot of cases. Right. I mean, I hear in California, some kids are living out of their cars to be able to go to college. You know, when you want to do something, you do it. So don't feel sorry for any of us that we had to go through that. It is what it is, but you know, it, it doesn't mean it was easy. <laughs> so I had struggled to make it into that third year of college. And by then my phone had been shut off. I had no car and I wasn't able to keep the utilities on anymore. So sometimes I was living in the dark and at the end of my junior year, I dropped out of college and I got married. Uh, later I did try to go back to finish my college degree, but I found out that my husband and I were pregnant before I could finish. <laughs> so I had the baby. And then a year later, my husband and I divorced. He had been traveling a lot. He's a good guy. I think we just never had a chance to bond because he was always on the road for work. So, but when I divorced him, I told him, Hey, I don't want any child support. I was really stubborn. I want to do it on. I was Ella on the white horse, you know, ride my horse too fast and thinking I could do it all. <laughs> but looking now back to that situation, I think it was a dumb mistake to forego the child support because I really struggled. But I did, I did want to make it on my own. And I, as much as it probably was a bad idea, I still am kind of glad I did it because it really made me grow up. It made me work hard. And, you know, even though trying to work with no family around and a baby to take care of and an ex who was always traveling, it was a challenge. It was worth it. I know that sounds crazy, but it was worth it. So the next few years were just a blur. I sometimes don't know how I made it. I didn't have a degree yet. So a lot of places wouldn't hire me. And because I couldn't get a job that paid enough, I couldn't pay for daycare. Um, so my ex-husband did end up helping me out with daycare costs. Eventually that was really nice of him because I wouldn't have been able to work. There was just no way. I remember one year on my tax returns, it said I'd made $5,000 that year. I mean, how in the world did I live on no money and taking care of a child? It's not like I got benefits from the government or anything like that. I don't know. I think I just didn't eat very much, but I did it. And somehow I even ended up going back to college. If you had asked me, describe how you did all that. I really literally say to you, I don't know. <laughs> I may have been dumb and stupid enough, you know, at that age to just be like, I just do what I do. So I started my first year of college in 1993, but I actually did not finish and obtain my degree until 2014. I mean, can you believe that it took me like 21 years to get that degree? And I say that for a reason, you know, not every person in the room that I was talking to that day is going to take the easier path, easier, meaning 
working really, really hard, but you get a degree or you get a trade licensing certifications, uh, you know, beauty school, whatever it is, nobody, not everybody is going to take that road and it's going to be a challenge if they don't. Um, so I'm hoping that they'll listen to me and go, Hey, when you take 21 years to get your degree, you know, it can be a lot harder for you during those 21 years, but at the same time, Hey, I finished. If you take the wrong path, (laughs) that isn't the smartest path. It doesn't mean you can't get back on track. It really doesn't take it from me. I could not be prouder of my degree. Um, so whether again, it's a trade school or a college degree, I hope you'll take my advice. You know, I'm someone who had to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy family. Nobody was giving me anything. So just, you know, do things the best way possible. Think about your future and go learn and get a skill or a degree that will help you make that money. So you never have to rely on anyone else except yourself and God. So you're in charge of your own destiny. I hope you'll really take that into consideration. It isn't easy, but it's worth it in the long run. And I am proof of that. So after finishing my degree, I eventually got a random job in software sales and I've been in the field ever since. And the job was hard at first. I didn't know what I was doing. I was making very little money. I was paid a very, very small base salary and also made a percentage of anything I brought in. So I was making commissions and I knew nothing about software. So they had to train me um, and just kind of guide me. And I really am grateful for those people who own that company that really went out of their way to be patient with me and help me and really helped me to thrive. So after five years, I finally found success and to get there, to get to that point where after five years, I could say, finally, I'm, I'm successful at this. This is cool. I had to work 60 plus hours a week. I traveled. I was on the road a lot. I missed my kid. I had to figure, you know, piecemeal babysitters together here and there. And I saw the opportunity though, to make money and making money meant that I could take care of my kid. And eventually, you know, I had the long-term goal of hoping to also give back to the community. So I worked as hard as I had to, to make that money and take care of my kid. And I remember literally having a conversation with myself. Um, I was living out of my car for, it was just a couple of, a few days. It wasn't like it was months and months. I eventually had a friend who let me move into one of her spare room, rooms for a couple of months until I could figure out my next step. But Oh, another story is my ex-husband also allowed me to live in the, um, the entryway of his house, which was like a little tiny box, but I was so grateful for that because I had a little closet in there. It was the coat closet. And he was like, look, I'm traveling all the time. You can watch my dog in exchange for staying here until you can get on your feet. So I think it was like, I don't know, six to eight months of that. Uh, when I first started at this company, that was the software company, but it was what I had to do. I had an apartment at the time. I gave up the apartment and moved into um, the entryway of my ex-husband's place. And no, we were not back together. It was nothing like that. It was just purely, we became friends later and, and he was very kind uh, to let me do that. So, you know, that making money thing, I don't want people to shy away from wanting to make money. What is wrong with wanting to be able to support yourself? It's not everybody's goal and that's okay too, but don't feel bad about wanting to get to the point where you're not struggling all the time. And I think sometimes we get on this cycle of going, Hey, money's bad. No, it's not. It's just a means to support yourself and your children and maybe even help your family if they're struggling, but definitely to help your community at some point, if you're making enough money, you can give to charities, you can start programs, you can go travel to see people in the nursing home. I mean, there's so much you can do when you are making a living that helps you to help other people look at it that way. You know, I had that conversation with myself of, I will do whatever it takes 
within reason, of course, to support my child and care for my child, even if it meant scrubbing toilets. At one point, I even had a side job of um, cleaning people's homes. And I started an organizing business where I would also help them organize their house as well as their day-to-day, you know, getting their mail, what to do with it, taking care of it right then and there, um, putting it in mail slots for later review as well as how to organize their kids' schedules. And it was a lot of fun. So that was, that worked for me because it's kind of part of who I am. Everybody has their own talents. How do you change those talents in a way to help yourself make money and to help other people? So this is why I get frustrated though, with people who just want fast money. Now I've had people ask, you know, before, well, how did you find success? And I'm like, well, are you willing to give up fun things? Um, you know, going out to eat a lot, going on trips, um, hanging out with friends so that you can be successful, meaning you put all your time and energy and effort into working. And if you are, and you're working harder and smarter, I think you're in the beginning, you have to do both later on. You can hopefully just work smarter because you're making the right amount of money, but you know, just, I, but I get frustrated because a lot of times they don't like that answer. You know, they just want to, oh, I just want a job. that's going to pay me a lot or pay me fast money. Or, you know, I'm going to get into this scheme over here that says they're going to bring me a lot of money and they fall on their face because really the whole, and the whole scheme of things, it's about working hard. So strategize, give it some time and set yourself up success by early on in life. When you just finish high school, go into a field that will make you money. Don't go into something that's not going to make you money. You don't have time to um, waste time on not making uh, an income that will support you. And if you, if there's things you like to do like nonprofit stuff, I recommend in the beginning until you get on your feet, doing that as a side thing. I, I know that's not a popular opinion, but trust me, it will be better in life. If you can first set yourself up for success and then put your 100% into helping other people. So 12 years after my divorce and 12 years after I had started my career and eventually became successful, I met an amazing man who loves me and my daughter. Um, she's 22 years old now. She is definitely the love of my life in addition to my husband. Um, but she graduated from Yale and her hard work, you know, coupled with the money I made from working hard and paired pairing up with my husband who was supportive of her college and career from day one. He was amazing. That's what helped her to start her own journey, um, starting out with success. Uh, we didn't give her things. We didn't spoil her rotten. Um, but we did, um, help her, to start her journey in a good way. We even made her take out student loans as well, coupled with the money that we were paying for, for her education, um, because we thought she needed to have a stake in that. So I believe we are together, you know, we're breaking cycles that were put on us many years ago. That really goes back to the trail of tears. Think about that. And again, I'm speaking from my heart to other women, because I think for a long time, we haven't had that guidance. And I'm not even saying I have the answers. I'm just saying, I learned from mistakes. So if you want to take a ride on my mistake train and <laughs> learn what not to do too, um, you're welcome to. So I look back at the hard times and the heartache, and I'm grateful for every second of it. And I wouldn't change a thing. God gave me the strength to get to this place. And I feel the spirit too, of my female ancestors, just cheering me on. So Sophie who lost her family members and had to give up her lifestyle and become a maid until her death. Rose, who had two children and couldn't take care of them, so had to give them up like her mother did. And then Ella, who faced a guardian every day who mistreated her and whose strength shone, though, as she fiercely rode that white horse. They are all with me 
every single day. So in addition to maintaining my full-time job, I also decided a while back to start a podcast to August of 2021, and it's called Native Chalk Talk. I started it really for Ella's sake. I wanted to tell her story, but I also wanted to tell the stories of any other Native Americans out there who wanted to share. And at Native Chalk Talk, my guests are sharing those stories and those traditions and that culture and history of our people and, you know, it's really done well. I've had over 20,000 listens and I, I hope to continue to bring those stories to folks so they can really learn from it and, and just be touched by some of those really amazing stories. So how about your female ancestors? Do you know their stories and did they give you strength every day too? And if not, you know, if you don't know their stories, go find out, ask, you know, relatives, elders, you know, sometimes learning their history is the only way that we can honor those who came before us. So maybe someday I'll interview you about the big things you're doing to help your native community and about your ancestral stories. And you'll become one of those people that are celebrated in Women's History Month. And how cool would that be as an American Indian woman to be celebrated in Women's History Month? So go out there and make history, y'all. Yakoki. Yeah, Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutha Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chutha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.